You're listening to In Network, Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe. Hello, and welcome to the In Network podcast feature, Designing for Health. I'm Nordic's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Craig Joseph. And I'm Nordic's Head of Thought Leadership, Dr. Jerome Pagani. We recently chatted with Dr. Adam Wright, Professor of Biomedical Informatics and Medicine at Vanderbilt University's Medical Center and Director of the Vanderbilt Clinical Informatics Center. In today's episode, Dr. Wright discusses why he chose to study biomedical informatics, what it's like to work with a self-developed EHR, and how math often takes a backseat to walking around the hospital and clinic. He also shares why feedback is essential for optimal design, the history of clinical decision support, and how to sustain projects long after the excitement for them has waned. Let's plug in. Dr. Adam Wright, thanks so much for being here today. It's nice to finally have a real doctor on the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, you're our second. We had Dr. Archana Tadone on our last episode. So our record of having real doctors, I, which I, I'm translating apparently for myself and our listening audiences, means a PhD. Um, we have two consecutive real doctors. Am I understanding that correctly, Jerome? That is correct. All right. Excellent. Your words. Not mine. Excellent. So, Adam, as a real doctor, uh, I wanted to confirm what I think I heard from you is that uh, ever since you were a young child, when you first got those uh, letter blocks and you were pounding blocks together when you were a toddler, uh, the letters PhD were your your favorite. And you always knew from uh, being a very young child that you wanted to be a a researcher, an academician. Uh, is, Is that true? Did I hear that correctly? It was actually HL7. So my first uh, creation with these letter blocks was a, a valid HL7 2.4 message. That is amazing. And that was probably uh, before HL7 was even founded as an organization. So um, yeah. prescient. Not that old. Prescient. That is, that is amazing. So, all right. Well, maybe uh, you've always been destined for this life. Uh, you went to Stanford for undergrad and majored in English. I, I did not. Math and computer science, the only true combination of majors. Uh, and apparently my uh, research has, um, has not been great here. So, uh, all right. So math and computer science at Stanford. And then you always knew you wanted to be a biomedical informatician. Is that? I will confess that I had actually never heard of biomedical informatics. So uh, as you said, I studied math and computer science. And I somehow did know that I wanted to go on to graduate school and study a little bit more. And I thought for a long time, you know, should I do a PhD? in math or a PhD in computer science, but those both seemed kind of long and hard and, and theoretical. And so I, I felt like I wanted to turn to an application of some kind. And I had friends that uh, went into finance or became actuaries, uh, but I was really curious about applications of math and computer science in uh, in healthcare or in, in biology. I had actually never heard of medical informatics. I thought I was going to become an epidemiologist. And then uh, really largely through happenstance, I heard of the field of biomedical informatics. I met this guy, Mark Mewson, who's a professor at Stanford in biomedical informatics, and he told me about the field. And I was like, wow, that's what I want to do. That is fascinating. It just struck me that uh, compared to quantitative finance, uh, there were uh, still some kind of low-hanging fruit, some uh, easy problems to solve that that needed hard work. Uh, It seemed like the problems were interesting. I I think I found medicine and physiology and pathophysiology just to be kind of conceptually interesting. And then, you know, most important, there's kind of this pro-social aspect to it, you know, Maybe if I uh, built a good computer application in healthcare, it would help us uh, provide better care to people as opposed to just, you know, make more money, uh, which uh, was appealing to me. 
Awesome. So you, how did you decide on uh, OHSU for your PhD? So a few reasons. I wanted to work with this guy named Dean Siddig, who I think some of you guys know. And so he was a professor uh, there. I also had family in Portland and really liked Portland. And it just seemed like an interesting place to uh, uh, spend a few years uh, doing a PhD. So, so that's how I wound up there. Awesome. And, and then uh, what is that? Is that a year? I don't really know how PhD <laughs> schools work. Is that a year it and a half? Varies. I was there for three years, which is on the faster side. Wow. Uh, yeah, somewhere five to seven is is more typical. But I kind of made this deal with my committee. I sort of spelled out this thing that I knew I could do, but they didn't think I could do. And then I managed to do it. So, so we had all agreed that I could graduate if I did it. That's great. All right. And so uh, after you got your, I guess, the best degree, the real doctor degree. The real doctor, yes. Yeah, you moved from uh, one coast to the other coast. Yes. And uh, we're at the Brigham. And yeah. Um, one thing in our conversations uh, that you've noted earlier was that at the at the Brigham, you had a self-developed electronic health record to work with. Yeah, wild. Yeah. Yes. Tell us about that. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm interested to hear how that, uh, because while you were there, you you moved to one from a, a major vendor. And yes, I, I'd love to hear kind of like the pre and post analysis of this. Yeah. So this is an interesting thing that's been going on in our field of biomedical informatics, right? So so many of the initial EHRs and a lot of the early research in uh, electronic health records and decision support was done at places that had developed their own EHR software. So uh, the Brigham, uh, big teaching Hospital in Boston uh, was one of the earliest adopters of especially computerized physician order entry. And uh, at the time, there was no real good commercial system that you could purchase that would do uh, CPOE with clinical decision support. And so they had made a decision, uh, as had many other kind of leading hospitals, to build their own electronic health record software. So that was really a fascinating time because we had sort of this notion of physicians and nurses and pharmacists and informaticians who were, were programmers. You know, you would go to your shift in the ED and then you would pull up the source code for the EHR and make some some changes to it. And there was a lot that was good about that, right? If you have the source code to the EHR, you can do whatever you want. You can make any change you want. You're not, your uh, kind of horizons are just limited by your, your imagination. And uh, uh, it was it was great. It was an exciting time. We could you know build new modalities of decision support. Uh, it's also challenging, right? Because anything new we did, we had to program. Uh, you know, we didn't just have the ability to kind of configure a new order set. We had to sort of pull up our uh, source code editor and, and make those changes. And it really worked well for for some time. But I think uh, you know over time, uh, the commercial EHR vendors were building better pr products. But the thing that probably really kind of tipped us over the edge, and this happened a number of places, was meaningful use. So suddenly the federal government was giving financial incentives for using an EHR, and that EHR had to be certified. And so uh, we did get our EHR at the Brigham certified, uh, and, and we did at Vanderbilt here, where I work now too. Uh, but uh, increasingly, almost all of our development effort was focused on uh, meeting certification and regulatory requirements, and we could do less and less innovation. And so the, the problem was, if there was a new round of certification requirements, uh, we had to build all of those just for the benefit of one hospital, whereas a place like Epic, uh, you know, has several hundred customers and they could sort of spread the cost of uh, these certification requirements over many different customers. So kind of the writing was on the wall and it was becoming increasingly clear uh, that uh, we were going to need to transition from a self-developed EHR to a commercial EHR. And over the past decade, uh, so many of the leading institutions, uh, you know, Columbia and um, partners, so Mass General and the Brigham, the Beth Israel was in the process of a transition. Vanderbilt made a transition from self-developed EHR to Epic. Uh, uh, the VA is uh, trying to move uh, with some 
challenges, as you guys probably know, uh, from their self-developed CPRS system to uh, a commercial system. And there are downsides. You know, I think uh, now uh, we uh, need to sort of work uh, in some ways within the framework that, that we use Epic here, uh, that Epic has given us. Uh, but I, I've been impressed. I had uh, I was pessimistic about how much we would be able to uh, configure or customize Epic. And I actually was amazed to discover that uh, we have a lot of control over the system, right? We can build things using Epic's tools. We can create extensions uh, in code. We can even integrate external applications using web services and Smart on Fire. Uh, so it's been good. Adam, do you have some overarching principles for how people and technology should work together in a way that supports that interaction? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, sometimes people ask me, are you just a medical computer scientist? And I say, no, I'm a biomedical informatician. And I actually think that one of the hallmarks of being an informatician is sort of appreciating kind of the people, process, and technology uh, intersections that really make these, these things work. And I've gotten better at this over the course of my career. I remember uh, early in my career, I would develop uh, these software tools. This is brilliant. I've applied math mathematics and computer science, I've developed the perfect software, then I would sit in my office and uh, no one would use it or they wouldn't use it the way that, that I thought they were going to. And I would eventually kind of got so fed up with it that I walked over to the hospital to try to pick a fight and see if I could figure out why they were using my software. And there were people that there, they were sick, they were bleeding, they were having surgery, like all kinds of wild stuff was going on in the hospital. And somehow that occasionally took precedence over um, using this brilliant software tool that, that I had developed. And so uh, the more I learned that, uh, the more I realized that I always did better if I spent more time in the hospital, more time talking to doctors and, and nurses and understanding what they did, and then trying to kind of fit a technology solution into their uh, processes uh, rather than kind of just having my own theory of what their process ought to be. Um, I'll tell you one specific story. Uh, we had built this uh, tool to help uh, people prescribe inhalers to kids with asthma. And uh, uh, it was so cool. It was really accurate. We validated it. It was really evidence-based and up to the latest guidelines. And uh, I discovered that people were not prescribing the inhalers I thought that they should use. And so I went over to the clinic and I realized that this doctor, she saw so many patients. She basically just had this like entire hallway of exam rooms and she would basically walk from kid to kid and like take away one inhaler, give them another inhaler, kind of switch things up, never logged into the computer during the day. She would just write this like one or two letter code to herself about what she did to the kid. And then at the end of the day, she would pull up her EHR and she would document all the changes she had made to kids inhalers over the course of the day. And then my system would pop up all these helpful suggestions like, did you consider albuterol? What about a steroid inhaler? And it was like, these kids were long gone, man. They had gotten a new box of inhalers and they had been home for hours before she even logged into the computer. And so it was like my own uh, hubris that made me think that she was going to use the computer in the exam room. No, no, not at all. And so once I figured that out, I realized that this was uh, needed a completely different approach to uh, providing inhaler-related decision support. Yeah, it is uh, unfortunate when uh, clinicians don't do what you think that they're going to do. Correct. I, I've certainly been in those shoes, uh, having designed amazing workflows and then finding uh, ways that people uh, bypass those workflows. Yeah. It's sad, but it does tell you where you stand. So clearly, um, observation, meeting with end users, with the clinicians who are at the point of care is important. Yeah. And I would presume that when you do that, they tell you things like, hey, this would be so much better if this weren't in alphabetical order, but in order of most frequent things at the top. Yeah. Or this color is actually wrong. It doesn't attract my attention and it would be great if it – and sometimes I think those are uh, are key insights. Oftentimes they're key insights, but sometimes they violate uh, 
you know, principles of design that you're trying to follow. And, right. and what they're really telling you is, hey, this would work for me much better, but yeah. that person may not represent everyone. And so how do you deal with those kinds of, of situations? So I think it's a great question, right? And I think that some of us have this tendency to feel like, oh, there was a doctor involved in the design of this, therefore it'll be like clinically accurate and relevant. And often that doctor is, you know, they didn't do residency or they're, you know, a left ankle specialist or something, and this is a primary care tool. So uh, I have found that involving multiple people is valuable and involving uh, that are actually doing the work is, is really valuable. We recently... Uh, uh, worked through a, a VTE prophylaxis or DVT prophylaxis tool that uh, we had been uh, developing over time. And we had this sort of august group of um, hematologists and hospital medicine leadership and people from our quality and safety department. Uh, but what I realized like partway through the discussion was I actually said, like, has anyone here ever admitted a patient using Epic? Because this, this stuff shows up at the time of admission. And the answer was no, right? Who does that? The intern does that. Maybe the nocturnist of the hospitalist does that. And so what I found is that involving multiple people and involving, um, uh, you know, uh, people that are actually doing that work is really, really important. Um, I think, though, you need to be careful. And this is, I think, part of what you're getting at. Avoiding design by committee, right? You don't need to pull those people together and have them like, let's just use a whiteboard and just have them, you know, design, you know, uh, the system by themselves. What you really want to do is kind of elicit their requirements and then apply some user uh, design uh, principles to design one or more prototypes and then show those prototypes, get feedback on those prototypes. We do a lot of what I think people call hallway usability testing, right? I'll mock up three different versions of a decision support tool and I'll just get whoever's like at work today. I'll yell down the hall and say, can somebody come look at this and give me some, some feedback? I have found that people um, are much more likely to uh, respond well to prototypes than they are to uh, respond to uh you know, a call to design the things th th themselves. I think it was Henry Ford had this story where he built the Model T and he said, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said like a, you know, a faster horse. But uh, he sort of had this insight that there was some alternative uh, there. Yeah, that's great. And there there are, you know, times where you do need a faster horse, but there are other mm -hmm. times where you need, you know, visionaries like uh, Henry Ford or Steve Jobs to tell you what you want and then uh, potentially yeah. to iterate, right? Because even though yeah. those folks were, were geniuses, uh, there were times where they created tools that just didn't work for the masses and, Absolutely. and you had to kind of go back. And I, I think that's one of the key things that I'm hearing yeah. uh, from you and others who are involved in these kinds of decisions. Like uh, it's yeah. there's no one answer. There's no one right. uh, rule that fits them all. I agree. I mean, I thought mightily. I hung on my BlackBerry forever. I said, I've always going to have a physical keyboard on my phone. I thought Steve Jobs was nuts to have a soft keyboard and uh, he was right, but it took me a long time to figure that out. And if he had just had, if I had voted, you know, there would be an iPhone with a keyboard on it. So you mentioned a little bit about how the EHR has changed over time and how your own approach has changed. What did clinical decision support used to look like? Yeah. I mean, I think it's evolved a lot, right? So some of the earliest decision support we had was table-based. So we would purchase a list of drug interactions from First Data Bank, and we would sort of implement that. And I would say, you know, why was that the first thing we did? It's because it was the first place where there was a good knowledge base. You know, there wasn't a reliable knowledge base of all the facts of primary care, or how to manage a surgical patient. But there was this database you could purchase of drug doses and drug interactions. And so I think that's where we started. Uh, and I think we needed that. I mean, obviously, uh, 
been saying, you know, harm from drug interactions or drug allergies is important and valuable. Uh, but I would say that, uh, you know, over the last few years, there's obviously increasing interest in uh, using machine learning and decision support. So uh, uh, we have a lot of students, especially that are trying to build predictive models and integrate those into decision support. I can tell you, though, that we have, I think, about 840 decision support tools here at Vanderbilt. Uh, and I think probably less than a dozen of them use machine learning. The rest of them use simple logic, decision trees or guidelines or flowcharts. Uh, so I wouldn't count out Boolean logic in the, the realm of decision support. I also think we have gotten a little bit smarter about workflow. Uh, I have increasingly found that uh, using uh, defaults and intelligent presentation of information can be as or more effective uh, than interruptive alerts. So I think we kind of got a little carried away with interruptive alerts at, at some point. And this is not a new idea. If you look back to the 10 commandments of decision support from David Bates and others, uh, they were telling us to avoid stopping and changing directions. Uh, but uh, I have personally found that the kind of CDS that is uh, uh, focused on providing the right information at the right time and almost making it seamless to do the right thing uh, has been more effective. I would say if you look at the future, uh, I think we're increasingly seeing externalized decision support tools. So there are standards like CDS hooks that let you build CDS outside of the EHR and integrate it, uh, that let you uh, integrate more uh, complicated user experiences or more advanced models. So I think that'll be a, a big focus. Um, for me, the other thing that's been really important is just increasing the voice of the user. So uh, I have uh, really tried to focus in my career on uh, user feedback and understanding what's working well for people, better monitoring systems to make sure our CDS is achieving its goals. Um, so I think that that's the direction we're headed. I love that conversation about non-interruptive alerts. A study that just I can't get rid of was, uh, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, from uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. They were trying to decrease the use of albuterol for yep. uh, patients with bronchiolitis. And so they did what I would have done, which is uh, remove uh, albuterol from uh, the mm -hmm. list of uh, options in the, in the order set. And so when you opened up the order set for bronchiolitis in the emergency department, you didn't see albuterol and, uh, you know, you could still order it, but you had to slide down to the bottom of the order set and put it in a box and search for it. And it was a little bit, a little bit onerous, right? It was a little bit difficult to not do the right thing. And what they found was people stopped using the order set. <laughs> Yikes. Right? They Because folks said, well, this order set's clearly broken and there's no easy way for me to give feedback. And so uh, I'm just going to just type all the stuff from that box. And, yeah. and the way they fixed this problem was by putting the albuterol, again, the medicine they don't want you to prescribe yeah. routinely, back in the order set with a little explainer, a little text box right above saying, hey, you probably shouldn't use this. Research has shown that it really isn't effective. And if you're going to use it, we would really appreciate you uh, ordering a pre and post pulse ox so that we can help you um, think about evaluating its efficacy. Right. And they achieved the same result of significantly decreased albuterol use um, by kind of pushing a non to me, that was a non-interruptive clinical decision support. It's just right there for you to see it. You can yeah. still do the thing. But uh, uh, so, you know, sometimes the, the logic, at least in my mind, gets turned upside down. Yeah, I agree. There's a subtle thing that I don't think people always think through is there are some kinds of decision support where I'm helping you remember to do something you want to do. So, you know, you've decided that you want to give pneumococcal vaccination when it's appropriate. And it's just hard to remember who's eligible uh, versus I'm using CDS to uh, change your practice. You want to prescribe albuterol. You think it's great. And uh, I'm trying to 
against your will kind of force you to not do it by harassing you or making a barrier or make it hard to do. And I really think the way you approach those two things is uh, really important. I think you, you said probably the most important thing, which is CDS is not the primary tool for uh, getting you to do something you don't want to do, right? Education, uh, like that explainer you put, uh, having a you know academic detailing or grand rounds where we talk about why we don't use albuterol, having the department chair give an explanation of why he'd prefer you don't use albuterol and bronchiolitis as much. Uh, start with that and then uh, build in some decision support to push people in that direction. Um, I'll tell you a slightly uh, more cheerful story about uh, modifying order sets. So uh, this is work that David Rubens led at the Brigham. Uh, we were uh, noticed that we were ordering much more telemetry than we wanted to order uh, and much more telemetry than other hospitals ordered. And uh, we discovered that the residents had created like a sort of customized uh, order set that they had saved as kind of the residency admission order set. And it had telemetry checked off by default. And so uh, the only small tweak we made was we left telemetry on the order set, but we uh, took the check box away so that it was not ordered by default. You had to click something to order it. And uh, a lot of residents actually said, like, I thought I was supposed to order telemetry for all the patients. That was the standard of care at the Brigham was every patient needed telemetry. And that was not the standard of care and, and not the goal. And so we had a huge uh, decrease in uh, the amount of telemetry that was being ordered to the point where we were actually nervous. And so uh, we looked to see if there were more uh, kind of out of ICU cardiac arrests or if people were then ordering telemetry on the second day or something like that. And none of that was happening. People were doing a good job of ordering it when they needed to. Uh, I do think that people tend to uh, look at these order sets sometimes as kind of normative, right? Like if it's checked, that means I'm expected to do it. And if it's not checked, I'm not supposed to do it. So I think adding uh, in-line uh, explanations of when you should or shouldn't do things is really helpful. I also find that uh, people are really frustrated. You know, one thing that I've seen before is something says like, if the patient's, you know, uh, over 65, then order this. If they're under 65, then order that. Uh, but it's just text, right? We should also then use some logic to check the thing that makes sense for the patient. And then if you think they're especially spry 66-year-old or an especially sort of right out looking 50-year-old, you could switch it. But uh, defaulting it the right way always makes people happier. So I think you said something really fascinating there that I just want to touch on for a second, which is that choice architecture, which is one of the tools that we use to help engage people and encourage positive sorts of behaviors or discourage behaviors you don't want to see, is great. Yeah. But it needs really needs to be there combined with some kind of stakeholder engagement and education. Absolutely. Yeah, I think some of the most interesting work I've seen on this is from uh, Jeff Linder, who studies uh, respiratory infections. You guys are probably familiar with this work, but he gave a talk that was so interesting. It was this from behavioral economics. If you take a wine shop and you tell people that you organize it, so you've got the red wines on the right side and the white wines on the left side, and you tell people to pick two wines, they'll pick one red and one white. But if you put the international wines on one side, the domestic wines on the other side, they'll pick two wines, they'll get one international, one domestic. So he knew that people wanted to quote unquote, help patients that had upper respiratory infections. Uh, and uh, the way they helped them was by prescribing inappropriate antibiotics. And so he created this order set that had so many medicines, right? Here's all your antitussive choices. Here's all of your decongestant choices. Here's all of your, you know, uh, head pain choices. Uh, and uh, here's all of your expectorant choices. And then you could really just load up the cart. You'd go through and click this and this and this and this. I'd give you so many prescriptions. I'm really taking your cold seriously or something. Uh, but what I didn't do was prescribe you an antibiotic. And I thought it was just a beautiful example of choice architecture. I'm trying to think of something witty to say. And um <laughs> Uh, I've lost on that. So, um, we might be here a while. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> one thing that, uh, I hear a lot of people discussing when it comes to design and clinical decision support is the idea that you're, you're never really done. Uh, 
Yep. Uh, and, and I think a lot of uh, healthcare systems and hospitals kind of have that attitude of they get all those people in a room that you described earlier and uh, all the smart people, some of whom actually write orders in the electronic mm-hmm. health record uh, and take care of patients. And, and they come up with a plan and they institute the plan and they watch it work for six months based on criteria that they've developed before they instituted the plan. And it's terrific. Yep. And they think their job is done. And the department chair says, move on, move on to the next thing. And uh, sometimes that's a problem. I think that's a huge problem. So I'll tell you uh, uh, that uh, we'll, we'll be uh, vague here, but I, I've, I've worked at a large health system. I'm familiar with a large health system uh, that had a policy that all the decision support had to be reviewed once a year. And uh, the CDS team uh, uh, approached a leader in that hospital and said, uh, we're too busy. We can't review the CDS that often. We want to uh, postpone or possibly switch to a two-year review period. And so uh, that leader said, um, you know, well, are we still building new CDS. And they said, yeah, we have time for that. We should have time to maintain the existing CDS. And so uh, that leader's response was, no, no, we don't have time to build new CDS and we don't have time to maintain the existing CDS. Uh, one of the biggest predictors whether people are willing to accept uh, new CDS is the experience they've had with old CDS. If you sort of let your old decision support rot, uh, then your new CDS isn't going to work because people sort of become just almost conditioned when they see a new pop-up or a new alert to just override it immediately because they know it's garbage. So uh, some things that I found that, that work well are um, – monitoring. So having tools to look at how much your decision support fires over time and how much it's accepted over time. If you have an alert that normally fires 20 times a day and now it fires 2,000 times a day or it fired zero times a day for the last three days, something might be wrong and it's worth looking at that. Uh, and I actually uh, got a grant at one point from the National Library of Medicine to do some of these monitoring things. Uh, but surprisingly, the most uh, powerful tool that I found was actually user feedback. So uh, it turns out that users want to tell us when CDS is working uh, poorly, and even sometimes when it's working well for them. So uh, here at Vanderbilt uh, and also at, uh, at Partners in Boston and other places, we have put these little smiley faces in the corner of all of our decision support tools, a, a frowny face, a smiley face, and sort of a medium in-between face. And you can kind of basically upvote or downvote the CDS and leave comments. And the thing that blows people's minds is, you know, I try to write back to their comments within a few hours. And so I got one over the weekend where uh, we had this genomic decision support tool for APOL1, and it suggested um, uh, uh, your microalbumin screening. The patient already had your microalbumin screening. I looked at the chart, and this doctor was right. Uh, we had made an error in the decision support, and so I wrote back there within two hours and said, I'm sorry, we have a new urine microalbumin test. It's not being properly picked up by uh, this alert you were right, the alert was wrong, I fixed the alert, and please keep the feedback coming. And so the thing is now, she, uh, first off, I solved her problem, and she told me about a problem, but I bet she'll be more likely to send me feedback in the future, maybe a little more likely to uh, read the alerts when I send them. And it's also just humanizing about it. I'm always amazed to learn that a lot of our users don't even realize that there are people at Vanderbilt that work on the HR. They think that we bought Epic from Madison, Wisconsin, and it just it is what it is, and uh, that there are 600 people at Vanderbilt working on it. It just blows their mind. And so, uh, you know, people occasionally write grumbly feedback, like, I hate this. You're so, so dumb. Like, you know, maybe a swear word or something. And then I write back to them, like, oh, hi, it sounds like you're really frustrated. And they're very apologetic, but uh, uh, they, um, that's how you kind of win hearts and minds, I think, is by just responding to users. So I think the secret weapon to making your CDS better is, is user feedback. Uh, but I'm also a big believer in kind of reviewing guidelines over time and uh, having good monitoring tools as well. Yeah. So 
I am going to be talking with your undergraduate institution to see if we can get that math degree taken away because <laughs> what I'm hearing is that humans are important. Yes. And it's not just about the programming. The code can be great, but if you're not getting that feedback and then and then acting on that feedback in a timely fashion, yes. uh, change that if you really want to change hearts and minds, and often we do, yep. uh, that's the way you do it. And you don't do it by developing uh, a new module that uh, can do something that people maybe haven't even asked for yet. Well, don't worry, because I am a sort of unfeeling automaton. I actually uh, used mathematics uh, to build what we call a sentiment analyzer. So it reads the comments and it finds the especially grumpy comments and highlights them in yellow on the report. So I use mathematics to figure out what the users were really feeling. So I think I should be able to keep my degree. I am so glad you said that because I was halfway through the email. Okay, good. Uh, so I'm going to delete that email now. Excellent. Um, because I, I, yeah, I do have powers and I didn't, I didn't want to have to use them against you, but yeah, uh, I understand. So Adam, how do you know when something you've created is ready for prime time and what does prime time look like? Do you start at scale? Do you start with a pilot? You, you sort of touched on that a little bit earlier, but if we could kind of come back to that and then when do you know when it's time to iterate and, and whether you're going to iterate on something or just sunset it? Yeah. So my own philosophy is maybe a little bit controversial, but I'm a big believer in getting things out as early as possible. And so uh, believe it or not, our CDS committee cares a lot about um, you know, alert burden and reducing uh, excessive firing of alerts and stuff like that. But I actually have a pretty low bar for putting out new decision support. Uh, as long as we uh, convince ourselves, uh, number one, that the thing is sort of clinically appropriate, as long as we have some sponsorship from the people that are actually going to experience it, right? So the classic example I use is when anesthesia comes and says, we want surgeons to do this thing, you know, can you put something new, like a hard stop to make sure the surgeons fill out this form before we get to the operating room or something. We send them back and we say, go find some surgeons get the head of surgery to come and co-present this with you and then we'll we'll turn it on for you so we need some kind of clinical plausibility uh agreement or kind of consent from the alerted or the uh supported in the decision support context and then the third most important thing is a really clear evaluation plan so i say we're going to come up with this metric we're going to say that we're going to improve this outcome by at least 20% or we're going to improve documentation by 45%. The acceptance rate alert's got to be at least 50%. So we come up with some actual measurements and some, uh, uh, you know, agreed benchmarks for those. And then wherever possible, and I don't always win this, uh, I prefer to do new decision support in a randomized trial. And so that can start small, right? You know, we sort of do a step wedge thing where we just pick one pod of one clinic and turn it on for them and sort of slowly work our way up. Uh, but I would actually say that I have a low bar for turning things on, uh, but I have a high bar for evaluating them and then keeping them on. Our committee isn't great at picking which proposed CDS tool is actually going to work and which isn't. Uh, but we, we, we can do well is look at the data and then turn things off. And I would say this has worked really well for us uh, with one exception, which is sometimes things get this magical moniker called regulatory attached to them. Like, well, it's a regulatory issue that we pull Foley catheters. It's a regulatory issue that we go see patients that are on restraints. And it is a regulatory issue, don't get me wrong. But we have used that as an excuse sometimes to keep decision support on that has uh, poor evidence for its effectiveness or even strong evidence for its ineffectiveness. And so uh, that's the biggest sort of boogeyman that I've been trying to get rid of is that this is a regulatory thing. I think if we really care about pulling Foley catheters on time, we have an alert that we know doesn't work. Uh, we're lying to ourselves, right? We've done something. What we should do is turn that alert off and say, we have nothing. Y'all are on your own. And then we could sort of start from the drawing board and come back and build something uh, more effective. Uh, but that, that's my take is start fast, evaluate quickly, 
uh, we sometimes iterate like multiple times in the same week. You know, if an alert fires often enough, uh, we can get feedback. We just had an alert for atrial fibrillation that we turned off and on twice in basically a week and a half long period as we made little refinements to it and saw what was working and what wasn't working. So that, that's that's my philosophy is I think we should turn them on fast. That's great. How do you sustain projects once the excitement's over? And, and I'm going to reference something that you just said, which to me seems like a brilliant idea. So you you uh, have CDS that's out there. You give people the ability to um, give you smiley faces or thumbs up, thumbs down, and to write some free text. And yep. I think in the in the uh, in the literature that's been known as uh, cranky comments. Yes, sir. And uh, you, I, you said that you used math, and this is why I'm going to allow you to keep your bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. You use math to identify those cranky comments, to call them out, and to make it easier, and, and I would argue maybe even exciting, to get that weekly or monthly report uh, for wh- whoever's looking at it. And that kind of keeps you going because, yeah, uh, all the stuff that I don't really care about is not highlighted, and, and some of the things I really should care about are, is highlighted. Are there are there other tools or ideas that you have to kind of keep people, um, you know, focused on the important things that they were focused on six months ago? Yeah, this is a really interesting question, right? So we get a lot, this is a training, a teaching hospital. We get a lot of uh, excited trainees and fellows that come through with a specific idea and they're so passionate about it. They build it really diligently and they, it's great and they get people to use it and then they graduate or they uh, move on to something else or start, start another project. And so I think that energy is incredibly important. We try to capture and harness that energy and point it in the right direction uh, whenever we can. But there is also kind of a almost sort of slow go kind of diligence that's required, you know, to uh, work on the other 840 uh, alerts we have and make sure they're working in our 2000 order sets to make sure that they're good. And so uh, I have found, honestly, that there are just some people who have the temperament for it. Uh, you know, Atul Gawande wrote this uh, paper about primary care, right? He's a surgeon and he was talking about the kind of power and beauty of going in and cutting out someone's gland and seeing their disease get better. And then he talked to his uh, uh, friend, uh, Asaf Bitan, who's a primary care doctor, and he's sort of slowly chipping away at people's LDL and hypertension and getting to quit smoking and, you know, who's really saving the patient, right? Is it the surgeon that does this kind of flashy thing or is it the person that meets with the patient 12 times over five years and gets them to quit smoking and start taking antihypertensive? So that, I think there are some people who are cut out to be primary care doctors and some people who are cut out to be surgeons. And I think I have the same thing on my CDS team. I have some people talking to one of my most diligent uh, uh, colleagues and he said like, look, I, you know, over the last two years, I've improved the acceptance rate for the medication alerts 1% uh, 30 times. And so none of those was exciting or, uh, you know, really that that impactful. But when he just used this approach to knock it, chip another percent off, now he got to 30%. And it's it's uncommon that I could make a single change to a decision support tool that improves at 30%. So I think you need both kinds of people. And I actually think that the people who um, are uh, doing the slow work uh, really benefit from uh, feedback uh, and and data, right? So I make a point once a year, we look at our firing rates, our acceptance rates, and I just say, look at what we've accomplished. It was slow, but we sort of knocked these things off and now we're 20% better than we were a year ago. And, you know, I focused a lot on the cranky comments, but believe it or not, people actually click on decision support alerts and say, thank you, this helped me. Uh, I hadn't thought of this. This was well-timed. And so uh, we make sure that we get those right to the people that have been involved in the work. Uh, And I also find, you know, 
uh, as people have been working remotely or working from home or something, some people have almost lost their connection to the clinicians. And so we try to bring our team in as much as we can to round with people or talk to users. And honestly, just hearing a user say something like, you know, I feel like Epic's a little less annoying now than it was a year ago. Uh, that's actually, that creates some excitement and energy to keep things going. So I think that that's, that to me has been the key uh, is just uh, being able to see the process, right? You're not Sisyphus, you know, it's not like just keeps rolling down the hill, right? You are slowly getting the rock up to the top, but just taking you a little while. That was great, Adam. Thanks so much. One question we like to ask everybody towards the end is to just have a think about three things that you interact with on a regular basis that are so well designed that they bring you joy. And they could be things outside of healthcare. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, the first one is actually one that I interact with primarily with my kids. I have uh, three kids and, and one more on the way. And uh, we bought this thing. I thought it was the dumbest thing I've ever purchased. It's called a nugget. It's a play couch. And it's basically uh, a couple pieces of uh, rectangular foam and a couple pieces of triangular foam. You can build a couch out of it. And my kids have so many toys. They're electronic toys and digital toys and stuff. But they just scream and fight with each other over who could like take the nugget and build a fort out of it or something. I don't know how the nugget people figured it out, but it's just the perfect size and the perfect number of pieces. We just bought another nugget because there was so much fighting. So when the kids get really aggressive, you know, Grace gets the uh, red nugget and Isaac gets the brown nugget and they play alone. But they have built forts. They've built uh, towers. They built a ladder. Isaac made a booby trap this weekend uh, in a podium and give speeches. They've made stages to play on. It's just genius. It's like literally, it's like $300. It's ridiculously expensive for a piece of foam with some fabric on it. But uh, it's my kid's favorite toy. And I, I should just throw their other toys away and get it. So whoever designed that is a genius. Um, the second one, uh, you know, I live in the South. So uh, I will say is the Chick-fil-A mobile app. So people here really like Chick-fil-A. And uh, so many restaurant apps like kind of break down quickly, right? So like if you want to get a free glass of water or if you want to order on your phone but dine in or if you want like a... Uh, you know, no ketchup on your hamburger. They just don't work or something. And Chick-fil-A's mobile app is beautiful. It uh, Everything works correctly. You can, it handles exceptions well. It's pleasant to use. The other day I got an alert that, you know, I had, place an order and I had actually accumulated enough rewards that they could make, you know, some, you know, this broccoli side dish I ordered free. And so um, it did, didn't have to proactively tell me that. I probably would have just let my reward expire because I wasn't paying attention, but they, I felt like they were helping me with that alert. So I think that that's a beautiful thing. And then the third one, I, I feel like these examples I give you make you sound a little bit sort of like a man of leisure on a play couch eating Chick-fil-A or whatever, but it's actually my hammock. So I have this Brazilian uh, hammock that I got and I don't know how they made it, but it's just sort of, it's so comfortable. You sit in it, you just kind of feel like you're floating in the air. It's exactly the right length. It's just comfortable. It's a, you get in it, you don't even feel like it's there. You're kind of sw swinging in the breeze. And it's uh, the one place I can sort of get in and just stop thinking about things and just relax or whatever. So I would say my nugget play couch, the Chick-fil-A mobile app, and my hammock. I should have picked like a fitness oriented thing or something, but uh, those are my three. Those are great. And uh, as the parent of four children, uh, I will counsel you later. We'll do that offline okay. and um, I'll give you advice, uh, mostly tax advice. I'm going to need it. Well, thank you so much. This was great. We really appreciate your learnings and your experience. And uh, I do uh, want to officially apologize for threatening to have one of your undergraduate degrees removed. Um, that was a mistake, and I won't, I won't repeat that. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. The privilege to be here. I had a lot of fun, and uh, I look forward to the next conversation. Awesome. Thank you again. Thanks for tuning in. 
We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information on Dr. Wright's work, check out the Vanderbilt Clinical Informatics Center at bumc.org slash VCLIC. Check back for more episodes of Designing for Health wherever you listen to podcasts or on nordicglobal.com. Till next time, we'll see you in network. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast as well. 